Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about how to release emotional clutter, how the power of self-care will improve your relationships at work and at home. My first guest today is Kate Northrup. She is the author of Do Less, a revolutionary approach to time and energy management for busy moms. As an entrepreneur, best-selling author, and mother, Kate Northrup has built a multimedia digital empire that reaches hundreds of thousands globally. She's committed to supporting ambitious women to light up the world without burning themselves out in the process. Welcome back to the show, Kate. It's been a while since you've been here, and I'm so happy you're back. <laughs> I'm so happy to be back. Thanks for having me. It is a pleasure. This is a subject that I hear Every day when I speak with clients, when I go to corporations and I do trainings, everybody is saying, time, time, I can't manage my time and I'm so burnt out. Tell us about the do less method. So the do less method is the idea that our way we work in our culture is not based on the way human bodies work, specifically not based on the way female bodies work. And that if we tap into our natural flow and way of being and what our energy is doing, then we can actually get a lot more done in a lot less time. And more importantly, have less stress and more fulfillment. So what's interesting is we work in our culture as though we don't have bodies and we are supposed to just push through and pretend that we are not also having physical experiences. But what ends up happening is with the average work week being 47 hours a week, it is creating increased anxiety, adrenal fatigue, and many, many signs of burnout. And it's important that we look at that and then, and we ask ourselves, what are we actually doing? Like, why is it that we're so obsessed with being busy and being in action and then change that programming so we cannot sacrifice our results, but instead really have more joy and fulfillment? Well, when we talk about why we work at this pace, I do think that it ties into not just the bottom line and the need to make the money, but it's also about where we look for validation of our self-esteem. I think you are totally right. We have been raised to believe that how much we do 
means how much we are worth. And so what's really important about the do less method is beginning to source our sense of self-worth from other things other than our accomplishment. And I talk about this in the book in the time bending chapter where we really need to focus on how can we be more present in our lives and actually be where we are? Because those are the moments, you know, when we're spending time with our kids, when we're being with the people we love, when we're doing work that we just absolutely adore or that that uses our best skills. Those are the moments that fill us up. And then we are no longer chasing the golden you know, the goal, I don't know if the golden carrot is even an expression, but you know what I mean? The like, gold, the basket of golden eggs, right? <laughs> exactly. Like thinking that when we achieve this thing, when we get this status, when we make a certain amount of money, then we'll be happy. But the truth is there is no way to happiness, right? Happiness is the way. And so that's just a really important thing to focus on is knowing that our presence in the moment is what it's all about. And actually, we do better work when we live that way. Well, and the challenge for many people is to be in the present moment. You know, that just being sitting still for five minutes, which is can feel like an eternity when you're in a stressed state, is a challenge for most of us. That is so true. And that's why doing it is so important. And so I really think of being of our ability to be present and our ability to expand our capacity to sit with discomfort like that, that squirrely crawling out of your skin feeling of being <laughs> bored or, you know, trying to meditate and, and feeling anxious or whatever. We actually that is a muscle. And we can practice and we can make it stronger. And there have been a a number of circumstances in my life over the last year, uh, actually since writing the book, um, including my husband getting sick and having some challenges with the birth of my second daughter, that expanded my capacity to sit with discomfort. And I've been able to get so much better at being present through practicing being okay with things not being okay. And it's so interesting when we are, when we expand our capacity to be present by willing, being willing to sit for three minutes in the discomfort. And then the next day, three and a half minutes, you know, and yeah, then the, yeah. it doesn't have to be major, but it builds that muscle so that when we are in that moment with our loved one, having a difficult conversation, we can stay there and not pop out and need to have a drink or need to eat sugar or need to get on our phones, like, or need to sit down and work. Cause there's so many ways that we numb out so that we don't feel. And I really believe this work of the do less method is about expanding our capacity to be with ourselves and be with others. I agree with you. And I want to go back to something that you had mentioned when we first started talking about the being in the body, you know, and as humans, when we are in our bodies, when we're really occupying this vessel that we live in, and we move our bodies, we're activating the left side of the brain, as well as the right side of the brain, the right side of the brain being the one that that is the problem solver, the more linear thinking side of the brain, the more statistical and mathematic side of the brain. But when we kind of get into the touchy feely parts, we're activating creativity and intuition. And when combined, that synthesis makes us that much better at 
problem solving and productivity. It really does. I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, that other side of the brain, we discount it, right? Because we live in such a logical results oriented culture. So I'm glad you brought that up. I don't know about you, but I can speak for myself. Like when I go out for a hike or when I go to a yoga class or go out for a beach walk, I am processing. I might not be consciously processing what's going on, but if I know I'm working on something, the ideas often just come without working too hard at it. Yes. There are these four energetic signatures, four energetic phases that we experience throughout the day that as women, we experience throughout the month in our reproductive years. And even beyond that, we experience them throughout the month anyway, because we're very affected by the moon. And these four phases are mimicked in the moon. And we also experience them seasonally over over the course of the year. And then I believe within our creative projects, we also experience them. And so these four energetic signatures or phases are the same as the four seasons. And what you're talking about is that that phase where it looks like nothing is happening, right? You're not technically working, (laughs) but a lot is happening and we forget in our culture. And so that's the same energy as when a woman is having her period as the menstrual phase. It's the same energy as the new moon. It's the same energy as the winter time. It's the same energy as the first trimester of pregnancy. There's so many places where these patterns show up in our world. And so we have to pay attention to them. And I believe we need to organize our time and our projects and our creativity around them. And so what you're doing is you're honoring the pause. Now you might be out walking or whatever, but people sometimes get their best ideas when they're meditating or in the shower. Like you don't have to be exercising in order for this to be true because there is a phase that is critical for every other phase, which is a time when it looks like nothing is happening, but a lot is happening under the surface. Like, you know, metaphorically, the first trimester of pregnancy, you make all the organs of a human being, but you don't even look pregnant. It's wild. Mm -hmm. So that is a critical time for all of us. You know, whether you're writing a book, whether you're launching a podcast, whatever it is that you're working on, know that the pause is part of it. And it's actually a critical part of it. Well, it's gestation. I mean, if you think about the word gestation and what that means, not just in the creation of life, But in the creation of projects, the gestation part is when things are beginning to percolate. They're incubating. Exactly. And for both of my books, when I've written them, it took me a long time to actually start the books after I signed the contract. And luckily, because I've had enough experience tracking my own creative cycles, I know that all that time that I'm not writing is actually part of it. And it's a critical part of it. And I've stopped wasting my energy by beating myself up. And I just know this is the gestation period. And then when I sit down and write, it comes right out. So go back to this creative cycle, because we've touched upon sort of the winter part Mm -hmm. of it. You know, we've sown the seeds, nothing is visible, but things are happening beneath the earth. Talk about how this lines up with the other three. Great. So the next one is, of course, the springtime energy. And we we all have have experienced springtime, literally. And then the (laughs) springtime for for a woman is the follicular phase of her menstrual cycle. So it's the week after she has her period. It's also the same energy as the waxing 
moon. So when the moon is moving from new to full, and it's also the same energy as the second trimester of a pregnancy. So it's the time when things are sort of picking up speed. It's a new beginning time. It's a high energy time. There's a lot of inspiration. It's a great time for initiating, for brainstorming, for planning, for getting started. And there is a time for that in the framework of a project. I also have a framework I call the upward cycle of success, which is overlaying these four energetic signatures or seasons onto the lifespan of a project. So I call this phase emergence. And then the next phase after that is, I call it visibility, but it really takes the energy of the full moon, of ovulation, of summertime, of really the third trimester of pregnancy when things are like out there. That baby (laughs) is like getting close to cooked. You've launched your project. It's the time in in during the month when you will feel the most like being around other people, when you will be the best at pitching, at speaking. You're your most magnetic. You're your most fertile at that time, literally. But more importantly, metaphorically, you're your most fertile. And that these phases, that more springtime energy and that summer energy are the two phases that are the most celebrated in our culture. We're the most familiar with them. We're excited about them. We value this energy. But the phases that aren't as celebrated and as valued are just as important. And they're the ones we tend to skip over. And so we already talked about that wintertime energy. But of course, the, the final one is the autumn energy. It's I call this period of time culmination in a project. It's it's the luteal phase of your menstrual cycle, that 10 days or so before you have your period. And it's also the waning moon. And it, you know it's, it's the autumn It would be the same energy as the fourth trimester in pregnancy when you are bundled up with your babe and you're really, you know, in this super, super inward time. The baby's out, but not really, like really still needs to be this cuddled little time. And so this is a time of bringing things to completion, turning inward, noticing what's coming up that needs to be let go of. You know, think about a tree in the fall, the leaves fall off the tree as the tree prepares for the pause, which is winter. So metaphorically speaking in your projects or in the span of a month, this is the time when, when you are letting moving towards closure. This is the time of endings so that you can then pause and bring in the new beginnings in that springtime energy again. And it's so important in our own productivity practices to honor the completion energy and the pause energy just as much as we honor the new beginning energy and the full bloom energy. Because if we honor all four phases and we then receive the gifts of all of them. And we might have fewer harvests. So we might put fewer things out there, but the things we put out there are so much higher quality that they have a much bigger impact. So, so the idea is rather than do 20 things in a half-assed way, do five things super beautifully so that you don't burn out, but you also have as good as, if not actually more of an impact. We're going to take our energy out for the pause and we'll be right back. To learn more about Kate Northrup and her work, please visit katenorthrup.com. On Twitter, you can find her at Kate Northrup. And on Facebook, it's Kate Northrup Community. Instagram and Pinterest, Kate Northrup as well. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit harvestinghappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. 
Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this episode. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, free, legal, available 24-7, and we're talking about releasing emotional clutter. The power of self-care to improve your relationships at work and at home. Let's continue the conversation with my guest, Kate Northrup. And I have to say, Kate, this is a revolutionary approach because what you're suggesting is that we view our lives and our productivity, much like getting in flow with the rhythm of life and the seasons. Absolutely. And it's, I mean, it couldn't be more perfect for the name of your show, Harvesting Happiness, because we can use so many metaphors, but I love the gardening and farming metaphor, which is that there is a time for planting. You know, there's a time for tilling and preparing. There's a time for planting. There's a time for tending. There's a time for harvest. And then there is a time for laying fallow. And yet in our traditional approaches to productivity, the whole premise is that if we can figure out how to fit more into our days, then we'll get more done. But it just doesn't work that way. No. What we need to do <laughs> is fit more of ourselves into our days. And then we get the important things done. And we also salvage our well-being because at the end of life, nobody is laying on their deathbed wishing that they had gotten more done. Nobody. Yeah. And so we need to be focused on, okay, how can I achieve the things I want to achieve? But how can I also be fulfilled and joyful at the same time? Because it's the fulfillment and joy that adds up to a beautiful life, not the checking things off. Oh, I agree. And how that permeates, it's a positive contagion or negative, depending upon how we conduct ourselves, right? To our children, to our partners, our families, our friends, our community. And if we are not fed and whole, as women and men, how can we give? There's nothing left to give. There really is not. And I had two experiences actually that really brought that home. When both of my daughters were about four months old, both times around, my milk supply kind of dried up because all of a sudden I was uh, really stressed and they both stopped well, they never really slept, but like stopped sleeping as well as they were and, you know, various things. And I had never before had such a practical experience of, oh, if I'm not taking care of myself, I literally can't feed my children because my supply ran out. Yeah. And so I, I really tended to that because their lives depended on it. It was quite profound. So that, of course, doesn't only apply to nursing women, but it's a metaphor. And so that time, that time of the fallow season, that time of, you know, getting a good night of rest, of taking the weekends off or whatever time it is that you're taking off, of taking a full break where you're not like halfway taking a break, but also halfway working at the same time, because that's like having your foot on the brake and the gas at the same time, and it'll totally burn you out. But really building in time for full rest every single day, but then also quarterly is so critical so that A, you get your best ideas and B, so that when you are back at it, you're super focused and you're on it and you're not just like blazing away the hours at your computer, just surfing the web and spacing out because it's just not a good use of your time. Yeah. You advocate in the book, Do Less, a revolutionary approach to time and energy management for busy moms. You talk about practicing body first, business second. Talk a little bit about the theory behind it and in your experience, why it works. I know why it works for me, but I want to hear about you. <laughs> So our bodies are our source of energy. We need energy in order to work and get anything done. 
And yet we've never been taught to take our bodies into consideration in the way we work. But I think this is ridiculous because if we don't have physical energy, we cannot work. And anybody who's gotten sick has experienced that to be the case. And so when I, I created a mantra, body first, business second, because I know when I first check in with what my body needs and I give my body what she needs, then I have the energy to do the work I need to do. If I don't, eventually my body will take me out. So I can either tend to her first or she will take me out at a time that's really inconvenient for me. So that's why I go by body first, business second. So it could literally be, a, you know, I just need fresh air. I'm going to go outside for five minutes before I finish this, this blog post. Or it could be, I'm exhausted this morning. I've been traveling nonstop. I'm canceling my meetings and I'm laying in bed. I don't do that very often because when I tend to my body every day, I don't need to suddenly cancel a full day. And so that's the idea. It's a, it's a very sustainable way to tend to your body every day so that you're not getting to the place of burnout. And tending to the body is usually the first place we will trim in our schedules, mm -hmm. right? Like, oh, I don't have time to get to the gym. Like, okay, I can call another hour if I don't do that. When in fact, it's counterintuitive and counterproductive. Yeah. I mean, if you listen to interviews with Richard Branson, Tony Robbins, you know, a lot of the, the big folks, they credit exercise as their number one success tip. Now, for women, I also just want to say there's a time of the month where it's really not optimal to exercise or if you are like very gentle. So I don't want to get this confused with an idea of push, push, push mentality and body first business yes. second doesn't always mean exercise. Sometimes it does. And when I exercise, when my body wants to, and, or sometimes when my body doesn't want to, but I just do it anyway, I have so much more energy and I get more done in less time. And also there are times when what my body really needs is a nap. And so I do that instead of exercise. But either way, it's not always like, oh, let me cut out what my body needs so that I can spend more time at my computer because there is a law of diminishing return. And the data just shows that we only can, any of us, even the highest performers, we can only be focused on things that really move the needle forward four to five hours a day in our business, in our work. And yeah. that really means you have a lot of extra hours to do other things. Yeah. To care and feed for your body and soul, to do constructive list. I mean, I love list making. Let's talk a little bit about the, the to-do lists and reaching peak efficiency with them. Yeah. So I really recommend streamlining your to-do list, um, not using your to-do list as a catch-all for everything you could possibly think of ever that you need to do. That's what a lot of people do. <laughs> and that just makes them feel like failures because you look at that list, it's never ending. So I recommend a weekly to-do list instead of a daily. I write it on half of a piece of eight and a half by 11 paper and I make one half of it the universe's to-do list. I got this idea from Abraham Hicks and I write out things that I'm delegating to the universe that I want want cosmic support with. And then I make out my to-do list and I ask myself the following three questions about each item. Does this need to be done? Because a lot of the times we put things on lists just to feel busy and like pump up our self sense of self-importance that we have so much to do. But really like there's a lot of things we do that don't even need to be done. Second, does this need to be done by me? So if the thing does need to be done, well, does it really need to be done by me? Maybe not. Maybe your kids could help. Maybe your partner could help. Maybe somebody else at work could help. Who else is in your village who could support? 
And then does this need to be done right now? Because if it doesn't need to be done this week, it doesn't belong on your list. It belongs either on your calendar or in your project management software, because putting too many things on your to-do list is a sure bet for overwhelm and overwhelm leads to paralysis. And then you don't get as much done. Love it. I hear you. I'm with you. For me, I love the big core dump, like getting it out so I don't forget about it because we're all really busy. So I find if I don't put it down on the page, I'm in trouble and then take from that big core dump and then break it down into, you know, distill it to, to smaller lists, you know, for the month, for the week, for the day. I love that. But I mean, everybody does it a little bit differently, but the idea is not to overwhelm yourself and still be able to operate and have some efficiency with what we're doing. Let's talk about asking for help because you mentioned about the universe and help. Tell me a little bit more about what you mean. So I really believe that there are resources available to us that are beyond our own personal ability to do things. And that is, you know, I have a spiritual belief that there's support out there that we have to call upon. You can call it your spiritual team. You can call it the universe. You can call it God, the divine, whatever you want. But we've all had experiences where we needed support and we asked and then miracles ensued. And to me, that's one of the most critical aspects of asking for help, because when we lean on that, which is larger, greater than us as humans through prayer, through gratitude practices, through, you know, whatever manifesting practices you may have, that is the ultimate in do less, I think, because it takes us out of our egoic human mind thinking we are the world's leading expert on everything and we are the master (laughs) of the universe and reminds us that we are just, you know, this one tiny grain of sand and that there's so much more out there going on. So I really believe in leaning into universal support. And I do that every week by making a to-do list of things I'm asking for help on from the universe. And then I also obviously ask human beings for help as well. Well, uh, (laughs) yes, asking human beings for help for many of us is a challenge, right? Because the ego is involved. The belief is that we should be able to handle it all ourselves. And in my view, in my own personal experience, that is just a recipe for burnout and overwhelm. It absolutely is. There is no one who can do it all. So when we look at women, you know, a lot of times we'll look at working moms who are really seem amazing in their career and say, well, I don't know how she does it all. And the truth is nobody does do it all. And I I will say, I just, I really want to encourage women, especially who are in the public to shout out the people who help them on a regular basis so that we can break the illusion that anyone is doing it all because no one is. So whether it's, you know, that you have a loving, supportive partner, whether it's you have your mother-in-law who lives down the street, you know, if you have a nanny, like talk about it. Yeah. (laughs) We need to break down this illusion and we need to break down the illusion that being able to do it all, which no one can, is a sign of strength because it's not. Yes. Yes. There are no hero awards for doing it all yourself except burnout. Set burnout and feeling cranky. Yeah. That's all you get. And when mommy's not happy, nobody's happy. <laughs> no, it's so, it's really not good for anybody. It's yeah. really not. And I have found by asking for help, it's built my community so much stronger because then the next week, somebody else asks me for help because they see that it's okay. And then I'm so happy to offer it because I'm not running on fumes. Yeah. We're more full and able to give, which ultimately 
is life at its best, right? When we are able to give and receive and, and serve and, and do the work we love to do to be our best and brightest. Exactly. It's all of it. You know, I had one more question for you about how this impacts by following this path, the do less method, this impacts the household in your experience. You're a mom, a wife, you've got two young kids. You'd mentioned that your husband has had some health challenges. How has your home been impacted by this process? Well, it's, you know, it's really an everyday practice. And so one thing is, it's really, really incredible how, how much more communicative we are in our household about what needs to get done and who's doing it. So there are no more assumptions or taking for granted that someone else is handling something or that like is sort of taking advantage of other people, assuming that they will do things. And that's been really helpful. Like we really laid it all out. Okay. What needs to be done in our household and who's going to do it? And then we reass, we reassess pretty frequently, at least quarterly to say, okay, how are you feeling? Like, do you feel like you're well supported enough? Do we need other support? You know? And so the daily logistics of life we talk about and we focus on a lot because I want quality of life. And the daily logistics are kind of what makes up the quality of life. I mean, when I talk to my friends, the sources of fights in their marriages are largely around household and family tasks. That if they had like a conversation every week about that stuff, it would prevent 80% of yeah. the tension. And you've also created a life for yourself, your husband and yourself that is really centered around a holistic approach, right? I mean, everything that I read and I've experienced of you over the years has been very intentional. It's very intentional. We really think things through. You know, we don't just say yes to something because it sounds shiny and exciting. We really think about like, how's this going to affect our health, the kids, you know, the homeostasis of our lives. And we say no to things that are exciting seeming because they're not going to actually feel good in our actual life, yeah. even though they might look good. I think that's a really important distinction is to begin to focus more on how things feel than how they look. We are out of time, but I want to encourage our listeners to read Do Less, A Revolutionary Approach to Time and Energy Management for Busy Moms, authored by my guest today, Kate Northrup. To learn more about Kate and her work, please visit katenorthrup.com. On Twitter, she can be found at Kate Northrup. On Facebook, Kate Northrup Community. And on Instagram and Pinterest, guess what? Also, Kate Northrup. Kate, you've been a delight. Thanks for coming back and sharing your new work and a little bit about what's been happening with you. And I, I'm so pleased for you, two kids, before there were none when you were here before. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Oh, 
Welcome back to the show where we're continuing the conversation about releasing emotional clutter, how the power of self-care will improve your relationships at work and at home. My next guest is Laura Carlin, along with her sister, Allison Forbes Van Hook, co-authored The Peaceful Nursery, Preparing a Home for Your Baby, and they are also the co-authors of a new book entitled Clutter-Free Parenting, Making Space in Your Own Home for the Magic of Childhood and the Joy of Parenthood. And here I am with an empty nest, moving into the next phase of life, becoming clutter-free as I age. And Laura, who's been clutter-clearing and organizing spaces since she was a little girl, founded Inspired Everyday Living, a lifestyle brand devoted to helping people create their ideal life through the process of consciously creating and caring for the home. Laura, I am so excited to talk with you about this because I'm in the thick of this process myself. Oh, I'm so excited to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Yes, what great timing because moving is just so ripe with opportunity to recreate your life as you recreate your new space. Agreed. And even though you and I are at different stages in the parenting process, there is an art and science to this decluttering. Talk a little bit about what clutter is and the benefits of uncluttering. Okay, so clutter is anything that is not loved or useful. And it, it I know. Oi. Right? And it really comes down, it, it is that simple at, it, at its core. And there is, you know, the more obvious types of clutter, things that are broken that we can't repair, things that have missing parts to them. And then there's the stuff that gets a little more complicated, the gifts people gave us that we really don't like, but we feel obligated to keep or clothes that we've purchased and maybe spent a great deal of money on, but we're never going to wear them. We made a mistake. There's a whole spectrum. And really what underlies most of all clutter is fear. You know, usually when we're holding on to things that are not loved or useful, it's because there's some fear. Wow. All right. Let's tease this apart. I'm staring at some clutter here. And what are the benefits of the uncluttering process? How do we move through the fear to the liberation from our stuff? So three different things. It drains our time and energy. It has a ripple effect. It affects all parts of our home and life. And it also blocks our dreams. It really gets in the way of our passion and purpose and the things that are most meaningful for us. So in terms of the the drain on time and energy, they say that the average American home has 300,000 possessions, if you can believe that, which is a staggering number. And if you think about one item in your home and how much time even one item may have taken you, even before you bring it into your home, you might have spent time comparing prices, researching which one to get, going to a store, or maybe order online, and then it comes in your house and you're unpacking the box and you're learning how to use it, cleaning maybe returning it, you know, maintaining it, it goes on and on. And that's one item. So clearly, we can't possibly manage or properly care for 300,000 items that is just going to get in our way of living, we're going to spend our time caring for stuff, and overwhelmed by stuff rather than doing the things that are most meaningful for us. And then in terms of this ripple effect, We think that, well, what's the big deal about having the clutter that's in the back of the closet or the clutter that's in the garage? 
But really, all of it is affecting all parts of our life. It's affecting relationships, it's affecting health, it's affecting wealth, etc. And just a quick example of this that I think everyone's experienced, trying to get out the door in the morning. I think this is also particularly pertinent to parents. You're trying to get you know, everyone out the door and maybe, and because of clutter and disorganization, you can't find something, the cell phone, the car keys, the school (laughs) uniform, whatever it is. And that sort of mad dash begins and things get more frantic and maybe you snap at your partner and then you are rushing your kids out the door and you're stressed and you drop them off and you have that feeling of, oh my gosh, I just, you know, I blew it. It's not how I wanted them to start their day. And then maybe you carry that with you and you show up at work and maybe you annoy a coworker and you can see how if this kind of repeated pattern happens day in and day out, how that can end up affecting all parts of your home and life, relationships, career, wealth, etc. I do see it. I do see a strong correlation between the, the physical clutter and the mental and emotional clutter. Absolutely. The challenge becomes how do we deconstruct this? I'm, I'm a little daunted because I need to go into my closets, you know, and go right. through the probably tens of thousands of dollars worth of clothing that I have collected over the years and figure out how to divest myself of stuff that I'm not going to use as a gentlewoman farmer. <laughs> There's a four-step process that I use. And the important thing is to keep in mind is also just to start. Because the amazing thing is about clearing clutter is that, you know, clutter is something that's that's tangible. It's something we can do right away, clear our clutter. It's free. And even removing one thing from your home that is not loved or useful or clearing out one drawer, you will feel the results. You'll feel the, the change in your home and, and in yourself. So the four-step process, the first step is, is to pick an area. And I like to go room by room. And within a room, though, you want to start small because you want to have an easy win and that's going to motivate you for the more complicated areas. So let's say that you are in your bedroom, maybe you have a bureau or a bedside table and you'd start with that. And then the second step is you're going to take everything out. And this is so key because if we don't take everything out, then we don't really truly address each and every item, which is the ultimate goal to engage with every item in our home. So you would empty out the bureau or the bedside table. And then the third step is to physically clean it. And that's because when we have this freshly clean space, we're just much less apt to put something back in it that is cluttered, that's not loved or useful. And then the final step is determining, is this object loved or useful? So the way to do that is for the useful items, we want to think about, well, when is the last time I used it? Do I have something else in my house that fulfills the same function? Could I do without it? And for the other items, for the loved part, we want to observe. We want to observe our thoughts and our body, really, and our feelings. So if you pick up an object and right away it triggers a negative memory or it's speaking to you in a negative voice, then that's something that chances are is no longer loved. That's no longer serving you and you want to let it go. And the other thing you can do is tune into your body because invariably the things that we love, we take a deep breath and we feel expansive. And the things that we don't love, we feel constricted. We feel that kind of sinking pit in our stomach feeling. Mm. What I'm seeing emerge from the tips that you're sharing is sort of the, the inner work that must go on with this clearing process. There's a lot of inner work that goes on and... 
you know, I often say that, that, and this is very much inspired by the University of Santa Monica spiritual psychology program, but how you clear can be as important as what you clear. So we want to be compassionate with ourselves as we go through this process. It's interesting. I have been approaching this from a very non-spiritual path. I have been like the kamikaze warrior. I've got to get through these cabinets or these drawers or this closet or this garage or this storage locker. And there's been no grace in the process. But what I'm seeing now with this sort of four-point checklist, the process probably would go more quickly. I think it goes more quickly. And I think certainly that the results are greater. I think intention is a big part of the process. So even before you start clearing to think about, okay, to, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity, clutter clearing to take inventory, right? Like where, where am I in my life right now? Because our homes are a reflection of our consciousness. And then we want to be thinking about where we want to go. So even just taking time to visualize well, what does my ideal home look like and feel like? What does my ideal life look like and feel like? Starting to, to, to set those intentions before you clear to think about that will really make the process even more powerful. And then as you clear, that's going to breed more clarity. And once you've made space, you can revisit and then go deeper with those intentions. Will you say something that I think is very interesting to engage with every item? So that means touching it, you know, taking a, a couple of seconds to contemplate your relationship with this object. Yes, because how I was taught by my teacher, Tara Catherine Collins, which is the idea that everything in your home is alive. And it's alive in two different ways. It's energetically alive, molecularly alive. So it has its own vibration. And it's also alive in terms of our thoughts and feelings about it. So we really want to have that type of relationship with every object in our home because it is, whether we're conscious of it or not, it's, it's affecting our energy. It's lifting us up. It's bringing us down or it's kind of neutral. Ideally, we want to be choosing love in our homes. We want every object in our homes to just, you know, make our hearts sing, to lift us up. And so... Again, with this aliveness, you know, we want to, like you're saying, hold the object, engage with it. You know, we're sitting on it, we're touching at it, we're standing in front of a work of art, and we really want to engage with it and have respect for it, too, in, in that regard. Because we, we also have to realize because the stuff in our environment is a trade on our time and energy, that we want to make sure that it's worth that. And then the things that we do love and that we do use are serving us. And we want to respect that and be able to properly care for it. I am definitely hearing you. And I'm definitely going to um, move forward in my process with a different mindset. You mentioned something a few minutes ago about gifts or things that we've held on to that others have given us that we may not like and the challenge in letting go of them. That that's a challenge. It's probably the question that I most get asked when I give a talk, what do I do with the unwanted gift? Because of course, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And this is how I feel about it. We can truly appreciate the person and the act of giving without keeping the item. And I think the best thing is to, you know, embrace, like enjoy opening the gift, enjoy receiving the gift, but that doesn't mean it needs to stay in our life forever. Because what can happen is, is we can feel very resentful. So it can improve our relationship with the gift giver 
by letting go of things that we don't want. And I see this a lot too with inherited items mm-hmm. that, that people feel very, you know, weighed down by feeling this obligation to keep inherited items. But same thing, that relationship goes much deeper than the actual items. And also I tend to recommend, especially for parents who, because a lot of, you know, relatives will want to give children gifts all the time and it's so well-intentioned, but we can also be preemptive and, and let people know that we are paring down, that we're simplifying and that we'd really, you know, love gifts of, of time and experience. Yes. I mean, at the end of the day, those ultimately end up being more impactful. But many of us are sitting with gifts that have been given or in things that have been inherited that I know for myself, I'm thinking of some gifts particularly that are challenging. And the giver of those gifts is obsessed with the whereabouts of those items. Oh, that's very tricky. <laughs> yeah. And, and ask, you know, do you have this thing? Is it so yeah. what do you recommend in that situation? You know, that becomes very personal and it's almost a case by case basis. But I do think that you can communicate to that person, you know, I've just been paring down and I, I found it, I found an amazing home for another, you know, maybe you can, can find another home for that gift. That's tricky. Yeah. You know, if, if someone is that involved, but I have to say, you know, in my own life, I just, I took a stand with it. And at first, I think it was hard for people, you know, especially grandparents to accept that I was letting go of these things. And then they realized, you know, that that's, they respected that that's how I'm leading my life yeah, and, and adjusted accordingly. And that's the inner work. That's also part of the inner clutter that I think we naturally are forced to reconcile with when we go through this kind of process. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, I'd love to talk about the use of your process with children when it comes to preparing for baby, living with children as children move through phases of their own development and how we can get the kids involved in uncluttering. To learn more about the work of Laura Forbes Carlin, please visit inspiredeverydayliving.com on Facebook Instagram and Pinterest. The name is Inspired Everyday Living as well. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book. Are we happy yet? Eight keys to unlocking a joyful life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, IndieBound and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness. I am talking with Laura Forbes Carlin about releasing emotional clutter and physical clutter in the home. Let's get back to the conversation. 
So, Laura, we spent a lot of time talking about the process, the four-step process of uncluttering, but I'd love to chat a little bit about how we use this process through the evolution of our children's growth and development as they move through phases in their lives and getting them involved in the process. Absolutely. So, so the main point of the, of this book, Clutter Free Parenting, is it's about making as much space in your home and life for as much love as possible to flow between you and your children. Because what I have seen in the last 20 years from personal experience and working with many people is that the physical clutter gets in the way of the relationship with our kids. The physical clutter is the emotional clutter. And it, and it does depend on what phase you're in with your children. I mean, for example, when you have young children, so much of life is revolving around the home. And it's a revolving around a lot of repetitive tasks in the home because you're feeding and you're changing diapers and you're making meals and there's bedtime and bath time. And these can be moments where we can be really present and connected with our kids and enjoying it, or they can be really frustrating and overwhelming. And usually the difference is how well or not our environment is supporting us. Mm. And talk about sort of the the toy mania that exists in families with young kids. Okay. So we think, you know, it's so well-intentioned because as parents, we want to give our kids everything, but studies have shown that kids actually play more deeply, more cooperatively and more imaginatively the less toys that they have. And I think that we've probably all witnessed that when we see a child at a holiday time or a birthday and they'll they'll tear through the gifts and they barely register one gift before moving on to the next. And then we've seen when children engage so deeply with one item and how precious that is. And oftentimes it's the box that the gift came in yep. or it's the you know it's the bowls and the and the and the spoons in the kitchen. And so it really is less stuff is more love. Yeah. And it, and it is counterintuitive. We think we're doing so much for them by giving them so much, but really it's about making space. It's interesting that you mentioned the box. I have a very vivid memory of my kids when they were really little. I think we had gotten a big TV, like a really big TV, which I could care less about. But the box was what was the highlight. And they kept that box. They, they drew on it. They painted on it. They played with it for, for several days before I finally said, okay, enough. We need to get rid of the box. But the <laughs> box was, was the shiny object. Yeah, absolutely. And I've had that experience too with my own kids. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Talk mm-hmm. about getting kids to buy into uncluttering. So there's different parts of the decluttering process. So one is determining what is loved and useful, you know, determining whether or not we're keeping something. And that really depends on your child's age. So for kids, and this is, you know, general guidelines, but for kids around seven and under, it's really up to us. We want to make those choices for them. And then eight, nine, 10, 11, we get their input, but ultimately we still have final say. And then when they're teenagers, we're handing it off to them and we can guide them, but we're trying to guide them to make those decisions for themselves. But when it comes for caring for the things in our home, we can involve our children as soon as they're able to. So as soon as, you know, they can walk, they can start 
clearing dishes. They can start putting toys in the toy bin. And what happens is usually around that 18-month, two-year-old age, they're fascinated by homekeeping, you know, they're and you know, doing dishes and and laundry and all of that. And so if we take advantage when they're young of that natural desire and natural curiosity, and admittedly it takes extra time when they're quote helping us because yes. it really would be faster <laughs> to do it ourselves. But if we make that investment early on, then eventually we are going to have a real helper. And for older children, I think it really does come down to inspiring by example. You know, we need to model it. As we know, our children really learn more from what we do than just what we say. So if we've got our desk piled high with stuff and our closet's overflowing and our car can't fit in the garage and then we go tell our teenager, you've got too much stuff, time to clean your room, it's probably not going to go over too well. So I always suggest taking care of your own clutter first. Yeah. Uh, which is, which is the challenge, you know, do, it's, you know, do as I do not do as I say, we need to walk our talks. I look at my kids now, I have a daughter who's nearly 22. And she is a, become a real homemaker. You know, she's a she's a mm-hmm. college student, she's finishing mm-hmm. school, but she takes a great amount of pride in the organization of her room of her cupboard, you know, in the house that she shares, mm-hmm. and the cooking and the meal prep. And I admire her. Like she really is into it and she's not into clutter. So as cluttered as we are here now for a variety of reasons, because mm-hmm. stuff is amassed, she learned early on about making her space sacred. That's wonderful. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Whereas my That's son, wonderful. the other one is, you know, forget about <laughs> it. Off mm-hmm. the charts. <laughs> the, in the other direction. But he's a guy. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes, too... It's easy to think that our kids or a partner, whoever doesn't care, but sometimes they actually just don't know the difference. And so some, so providing that clutter free space for our children is, is also really a gift because then they understand it. And I even had this happen in my own life uh, recently because we were between homes in Idaho and California. And when we came to California, we brought very few things with us. And my home in Idaho is certainly not cluttered. But when my younger son went back to Idaho, he took a look at his bedroom and he said, Mommy, he goes, there's too much stuff. He goes, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, I can't live like this. And so I realized that, again, it's also just not having the experience of it sometimes. So sometimes it is really helpful to say, let me help you out here. Let me show you what this is like. Yeah. And what about the pack rats? Like I have a partner who has kept every piece of paper probably that's ever come through. And as he has a really hard time parting with that stuff. I think, so what I say is with partners is a similar thing with what I say with children is again, take care of your own clutter first, inspire by example. Sometimes again, they just truly have not experienced the benefits yet. That feeling of living with just the things that are loved and useful, that feeling of being so supported and having the time and energy for the things that are most meaningful. Sometimes support can be really helpful, you know, whether it's a hiring an organizer or a friend who can come support you. And oftentimes too, I say, you know, if it, cause sometimes it can cause conflict, you know, clutter can be a big source of conflict. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with our partner, with our kids arguing about who gets to use it, who's going to pick it up, who's going to take care of all of that. So clutter can be this source of conflict too. 
And when that's the case, I also say if your partner's not on board or your kids aren't bored, then it's also really important to divide up space as much as you can. So have your own closet if you can, your own side of the closet. That way you get to live the way that you want to live as they're hopefully, you know, figuring it out on their on their journey. Well, that's good counsel. You know, allow everybody the dignity of their process, right? Yes, yes. And I also think what it is too is it's pointing out when you make that connection that the physical clutter is the emotional clutter, when you start realizing, wait, this is more than just stuff. This is actually holding me back from doing the things that are more meaningful or from new opportunities coming into my life, new ideas, then that becomes very motivating. Oh, I, I am now like so on it, girl. I, <laughs> I'm going to go and start um, mindfully touching everything and then moving it out. <laughs> Let's talk. You know, oh, sorry, okay. go ahead. I was just going to say, I can give you a quick example. And this was about my son, about how clutter can block our dreams from, from coming true. So my mom introduced Matthew. She took him to a museum that had a model train layout when he was seven, and he decided he wanted to build model train layouts. And that is a hobby that requires a lot of space. And it started in our kitchen area, and, you know, there's paints and paper mache, and I'm thinking, okay, this is, you know, how is, how is this going to work in here? And so we had this storage room in our basement, and it was three walls lined with shelves and boxes filled with who knows what, you know, wedding gifts we didn't use, current Halloween costumes, you know, hobbies that we had abandoned, whatever it was. And we decided that we were going to let go of this stuff and make room for model train building. And what was amazing is that passion of his stuck with them. I mean, he's almost, he's just turned 12 now and he has been volunteering his time at a train museum with his dad. He has still been building model train layouts. He wrote an essay called my life with trains that won a PBS contest in Idaho. And one of the lines from the essay was my mind got carried away. And then I said it, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. So I think about how easy it would have been for me to have said, you know what? We don't have room for model train building. We don't have room for this dream. Yeah. And for what? For a room full of stuff that I can't even remember what was in those boxes versus the rest of my life. Yeah. So, wow. What a great story. A really, really good story. We're nearly out of time, and I wanted to touch upon the work that you do over at InspiredEverydayLiving.com because it's a really nice resource. Yes. So my sister and I offer in-person consultations if you happen to be in Los Angeles or in Boise, Idaho. And we also do phone coaching. And we also have a lot of information on our website, a lot of articles and information on the website. Well, Laura, you're going to come back and we're going to talk about uncluttering our offices and our corporate spaces, because I think that would really be of interest to the listeners. Great. I'd love to. Yeah, we're going to do it. To learn more about the work of Laura Forbes Carlin and her sister, Allison Forbes Van Hook, please visit www.inspiredeverydayliving.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest. Those pages or those handles are the same, Inspired Everyday Living. The book we've been talking about today is Clutter-Free Parenting, Making Space in Your Home for the Magic of Childhood and the Joy of Parenthood. Thanks, Laura. See you soon. Thank you so much, Lisa. 
Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, Kate Northrup and Laura Forbes-Carlin, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.